coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I am so excited to be here. In 2015, I founded the Queer Improv Show, Thank You for Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it, and it is now one of the longest uh, running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share our coming out stories, and then our improvisers bring them to life. Our podcast is a little different. We still have a storyteller share their stories, but instead of folks improvising, we talk about them. And I am so excited about our guest here with me today, writer slash comedian H. Allen Scott slash Sadie Pines, any pronouns, depending on, you know what, it's complicated and we're going to talk about it, is the woman behind the drag goddess Sadie Pines. You may have seen them on Ellen, Jimmy Kimmel Live, or in the pages of the New York Times and Los Angeles Times, or heard them on Out on the Lanai, a Golden Girls podcast, You're Making It Worse, or NPR. H. Allen is a subject of the documentary film Latter Day Jew. Hey, Talon, welcome. Hello. Oh, my God. So many slashes. So many explanations. Like, I feel like everything about me is like, and we'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know what? We are we are complicated, nuanced human beings where it's, sometimes yeah. it's hard to just be like, I'm this one thing. Yeah, I know. And who wants to be one thing? Not me. Not me. I don't want yeah. to I want to be lots of things. Yeah, me too. Yeah. What's like, if you had to pick your top, like, three things in this moment and of course i can change mm. in five seconds what would they be yeah. right now like to describe me mm-hmm. yeah it would be sadie pines would be number one up mm-hmm. top one thousand percent you know that's always present uh golden girls would be a big thing everything i've done with the golden girls and around the golden girls that's always a very important part of me and the third thing oh the third thing's kind of a plot twist um oh i don't even know i'd probably say like maybe the jewish part of me mm. that's probably a yeah that's a big part of me so the jewish part amazing i can't wait to talk but to that, you literally about all of those things <laughs> that takes less precedent over sadie and <laughs> and the golden girls sorry jews sorry jews um you know we've yeah. been through enough so <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. yeah yeah I mean. exactly exactly we have though we have so we really fun. have yeah yeah um yeah. Okay, so we all have multiple coming out stories, multiple coming mm-hmm. into ourselves stories. Um, and so me and all of our listeners would love to hear one of those stories from you. Yeah, it's so interesting because I remember years ago, you remember when they were doing the whole It Gets Better campaign? Yeah. And I I mean, I tend to be a little cynical, but sometimes I'd watch the It Gets Better videos and I'd be like, okay, okay, people, now we're just trying to make everyone cry. Like, it, <laughs> right. it got it got to a point where I was like, are we improving moments here? Mm. Um, but I I got asked in New York uh, to do a uh, It Gets Better show, right? And I I wrote my story. I did my whole thing, you know, about me coming out and all of the stuff. And I performed it and they were very disappointed because my my coming out wasn't sad or like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> it wasn't anything like, you know, grand. Cause I basically performed a set being like, I never really had to come out because it's hard to deny the homosexuality of all of this. So <laughs> I was always kind of out in a lot of ways. And uh, I don't think they necessarily liked my funny slash positive story of always being queer. <laughs> mm. Yeah. 
That's yeah, uh, it was. Sorry, go ahead. I mean, I think the thing, if I had like looking back, how I and in, in that show, even how I talked about my coming out, my real coming out was with the film The Birdcage, and I feel like that was sort of like the moment in my life where I personally felt comfortable being gay. I think, and I never really had to come out because it was always this sort of unspoken reality in my world that like it was okay for me to be gay even though i come from a mormon family they're very liberal and you know my mom always joked that you know we're they were too poor to be conservative so like <laughs> we were all very liberal and and socially liberal and so it was always sort of accepted in my family that i was a caveat i was different from my brothers in a lot of ways and my mom would be joke and be like you know when you kids grow up and have kids and then she turned to me and go or adopt like it was always sort of like a, a, a different excuse for me which is was fine with me and it it sort of opened up a, a area in which I was okay to sort of just be. But with the birdcage, I remember going to see the film. We had like a Friday night movie night with my family a lot. And we went to Crestwood Cinema um, at the Crestwood Mall in St. Louis, Missouri, suburbs of St. Louis. And um, I saw the birdcage because we were all really excited. It was Robin Williams and it was a big movie and it was sort of heavily promoted. And we were like, this is going to be really funny. And I remember watching it and it was so gay. I mean, it was so gay, so gay, so gay the <laughs> yeah. gayest film. Mm-hmm. And and I, I remember watching Nathan Lane's character and being kind of terrified of him because I saw so much of myself in Nathan Lane's character yeah. and just the way Nathan Lane talked and the his mannerisms and how extra he was and how dramatic he was and how all of the things that was Nathan Lane in The Birdcage was me. And I got really scared about sort of like, everyone looking at me. I felt like the entire theater was kind of looking at me, which is of course also the most vain dramatic thing you can think of because (laughs) no one's looking at me. No one even (laughs) is associating this with me. But um, uh, I remember being very scared. And when we were driving home, we had um, one of those extended rooftop vans, you know, in the nineties that Mm -hmm. was really big vans that like the big families would all have. And it had, I don't think ours had a TV in it, but some of them had a TV in it and stuff. And those were like the rich people anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, we were driving home in that van and I was sitting in one of like the back seats and my mom was sort of just turned around and was like raving about Nathan Lane and how great it was and how great Robin Williams was in it and how awesome it was that someone like Nathan Lane exists in the world and that we need more people like Nathan Lane. And it was this weird subtext of like my mom recognizing that I was responding to Nathan Lane. Mm. You know what I mean? And subconsciously she just knew, even though I had said nothing, she kept talking about Nathan Lane and how great Nathan Lane was and how we need more people like that. And it just, that was kind of my coming out was just sort of my mom acknowledging that Nathan Lane in the birdcage is a good thing and you should lean into being like that. And I didn't quite immediately lean into being like that. I still sort of had that back and forth dance of like, should I be this? Should I not be this? Like, what should I be doing? But it sort of set the stage for me to be okay to just to exist And that's sort of what I always attribute my coming out to is that moment. Wow. I, uh, I'm, I'm tearing up over here. It's, it's, um, really special to hear, um, kind of the, the flip side of the coin of parental, um, interactions. I feel like a lot Mm. of times when I am interviewing someone or having conversations with people, most of most of the time it's not necessarily in the hostile range, but it's not in the, I see you and I'm going to say the things that I think you need to hear range like that, that Mm -hmm. to me feels very rare. And 
Yeah. Um, that's really special. Yeah, and I, I recognize that because I hear, even though I can be cynical about a lot of it gets better stories and stuff, I, I, I do recognize that I'm my story is kind of an anomaly amongst a lot of queer people's experiences, especially marginalized queer people. Queer people are already marginalized, but marginalized people within the queer community mm-hmm. often have even harder times coming out. And so I rec- I fully recognize the the privilege and blessing that I have in the family that I came from. And I'm grateful for that every single day of my life. Uh, and it's, I mean, I, I imagine that on a podcast like this, you must hear a lot of sort of really sometimes depressing stories and, and there's hope that can come from them, but it must be, it must be emotionally taxing. Yeah. It, I mean, it can be for sure. I think mm-hmm. what I, what I love about talking to people and mm-hmm. is, is hearing kind of like the arc of like, maybe it, what, I mean, for better, for better, for worse, it is kind of like this get, it gets better of like someone yeah. having a really hard coming out um, or not as, not as easy as one would hope. And then, yeah. you know, fi- having the, like these ring of keys moments or having these moments of community and reflection mm-hmm. and then are kind of quote unquote on the other side and are able to talk about yeah. it in a way that's from a, from a more healed place. So for yeah. me, like it is hard and also really nice to get to um, hold space for people to share their journeys. It's, um, mm-hmm. but it definitely does get emotional. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, Trust me, I wanted like there were times where I was like, especially years, years later, years after all of this, when it gets better was happening. I was like, I wish I had one bad moment. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, like I wish because I mean, I had I had bad things happen to me, of course, like people mm. called me faggot and people said things to me and did things to me that were obviously very sort of targeted because of my queerness. But but I think in a weird way, it was sort of like this armor that I had because I was funny. And so I had that and I, I always was kind of. Um, not I wouldn't say popular, but I was like liked because I was funny and I could talk my way out of any situation and do anything that I wanted because of being able to talk my way into things, and and so I I had this armor of whenever someone would do something like that to me, or especially if since I was a fat queer kid, it's sort of like it added on to that. That sort of there there was a little bit of sort of insecurity there, but even then my humor. And my mom, I think my mom's sort of presence in my life and her positivity and her reinforcement of me being a good person and whoever I am is a good thing um, really sort of allowed me to be like, okay, well, you clearly don't get it. You don't get me. So you're a loser and you need to go over there. Like that was always sort of my mentality. And it really, it's really helped me. It really helped me back then. And I I think, um, yeah, I'm just really grateful for it. I love that whoever you are is a good thing. Yeah. I love that so much. I wrote it's it so down. It's so true, though. <laughs> it's yeah. so true. Because it's just, you know, even the bad things that you consider bad about yourself, I think is a good thing because it makes us sort of who we are. It makes us part of our character. You know what I mean? Like, I can be annoying. Trust me. Mm-hmm. I can be annoying. <laughs> and And I can be all these bad things that I hate sometimes about myself. But it's like, those are the things that also make up what's good about me as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think yeah. I was just talking about this this weekend of uh, like some, some cringeworthy moments from my time dating yeah. a decade ago or, you know, however yeah. long ago. And it's like, all I had to do all the things like when I was, I, I don't drink anymore, but when I was drinking all of the like dumb stuff that I did or said, 
I would I would put that in a category of that was that shit was very stupid. And like I had to like experience all of it to then build the character and build the person that I am today. And I am proud of who I am today, but I couldn't have gotten here without all of that stuff first. Yeah, yeah, no, fully. I I, oh, yeah, I look back at some of the stuff I've done. It's bad. It's not bad, but it's just like a, it's it's embarrassing, I guess you could say. And that like the cringeworthy things that we've done or like the or the I mean, I look back at like some jokes that I've said or some some the drugs that I've used or like all of the thing, all the moments that shape up sort of how we become the adults we become. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's there's some cringeworthy, cringeworthy moments. But again, I'm not like sad about them. Mm-hmm. I'm just sort of like they got me here so and here's okay here's pretty good yeah yeah how how old were you when you saw the birdcage um i was like 12 i was a kid i was like a little kid i was in that sort of prime like realizing your gay stage you know what i mean yeah. yeah um and it was it was big it was really big it's such a good movie it is such a good movie though it holds up too it man it really does Yep. It's uh, I I just watched it recently too and it's 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 just one of those movies that like I have a really good friend um a drag king friend Tenderoni. I don't know if you know of Tenderoni. Mm-hmm. And we bond over um over the Birdcage quite a bit and how influential the Birdcage has been to our foundation of not only pop culture and our comedy and how our outlook on sort of how we do drag and the references we pull from and the things we say and all of the things the birdcage is so emblematic of the artists that we have become and it's it's a i think it deserves deserves a little bit more respect i think is it is it that it gets disrespect or just it doesn't get enough respect or like like don't don't, people aren't talking about it as much as they should be yeah it doesn't get i feel like i feel like it doesn't get the um attention it deserves in terms of the queer canon of cinema because it does mm-hmm. it is a very i mean it's complicated in some ways because there are straight actors who played very prominent queer roles in in the in the film Although I would say the best character was a, a queer actor playing a queer person, although he wasn't out at the time. Um, and so it is a very straight film, I would say. It's a straight creative team behind the film. But there's also a lot of really interesting queer influences in the film that are amazing. And I don't know. It's just it's, it's just so important, I think, to the queer canon that I feel like younger queer people who are interested in queer cinema that would go back and like watch that and really sort of recognize how special of a film that was in 1996, because prior to that, you know, there weren't many queer films that weren't depressing or that mm-hmm. didn't involve someone dying of AIDS or have someone being beaten up or someone being murdered, or there weren't many queer comedies like that, that centered a story around queer characters being funny and it was absurd and all of these things. And, and then, so it's sort of a rare gem, I think because of that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I wonder if like is I'm so bad with names, but Nathan Lane's character. Um what I forget what is, his name. I, I I always blank on his name, but I will find it out real quick. You keep talking, I'll find that out. Okay. Because I, 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 I say Nathan Lane. Let's I just, <laughs> yeah, let's you know what, let's just say, yeah. say Nathan Lane. Um It's Albert. Albert. Albert, that's right. Um yeah, Albert and Armand. Robin Albert Williams is Armand. And Armand, that's right. Yeah. Um like in hindsight was albert a trans woman interesting i don't 
That's an interesting question. I, I would say that Albert was, was non-binary in that mm. Albert, in the impression that I got from Albert, Albert was very much in love with, with Armin. And I feel like Albert's male identity influenced or his masculine, their masculine traits influenced his need and desire to want to please Armand and his, and his son, obviously. And, and even you see sort of how he interprets masculinity in, in their own way, in terms of the pink sock and the, the suit and all of the things like, so I feel like there is a masculine energy to Albert as a character that, that, of course, can exist in a trans person, of course, like, you know, in, in a trans woman, you can have masculine traits as a trans woman. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a really interesting conversation. I probably, maybe I could see that happening. Although part of me feels like it's such a fluid character that they'd go in lots of different ways. They can do mm-hmm. anything. They're an artist. They can be everything. Yes. I mean, that, op- that opens up a whole can of, of yeah. worms that, of yeah. like who should yes. be playing what characters and yes i think giving mm-hmm. giving passes to shows in the movies in the 90s is easier than now <laughs> um i agree i agree i think and i think i i think there was the, i think robin williams and um and tom hanks uh are two straight actors from the 90s that were in two very important queer films that it was actually kind of beneficial for those straight actors to be playing queer characters because of what it did for the queer rights movement, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, I think that was an important moment for us as a, as a history, you know, for mm-hmm. our history. And when you say Robin Williams, you're, you're talking about Birdcage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about his role as Armin and Birdcage as a juxtaposition to Tom Hanks's role in Philadelphia. Because mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, Tom Hanks obviously played a man dying of, of complications from AIDS. And and. I think it was, I mean, Tom Hanks is the modern day Jimmy Stewart. He's, he's, he's sort of, he's the actor that every single person knows. He's everyone's best friend. I just recently interviewed Tom Hanks for the other podcast that I do, Parting Shot. And I talked to him about this, about how important it was for, um, for Tom Hanks to, why he wanted to play that role, but also why he thought it was so important for it to be a big movie. It needed to be a big motion picture that would, would match the ranks of action films of the Jurassic Park of the same year of those big films from that year. Mm-hmm. And because he said that having a queer character, having a gay character in, in the presence of someone like him, who is everyone knows who Tom Hanks is. So the fact that everyone knows who Tom Hanks is that that woman in Nebraska is going to see Tom Hanks playing a queer person. And they're going to think, Oh, what happened to that hairdresser that I had that just mysteriously stopped working at Supercuts a couple of years ago? I'm, I'm talking in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And the likelihood is that queer person that that woman in Nebraska went to to get her hair cut died of AIDS. Right. And they maybe never knew that, but they made that connection because of Tom Hanks. And mm-hmm. that's the power of the movie starts, the power of the movies. And I think in a similar way with Robin Williams, it allowed my family to to go to this movie. They would never have gone to this movie if Robin Williams hadn't been in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, and to have that moment that I had because of Nathan Lane in the movie, it was because of Robin Williams. And mm-hmm. I think, I don't think my story is unique. I think it's actually pretty common um, in terms of the, the, the presence that, that Robin Williams part had for a lot of straight people in that film. Yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. I, I I wanted I wanted you to clarify which movie because there's also a lot of conversation around Mrs. Doubtfire, 
and the harm. Oh yes, the harm. The yes. harm that having a cis actor play a trans. Yeah, I mean, not that we can or don't need to get into the nuance of it all, but you know, like the there, yeah. it all is very right. It's like having Tom Hanks play a you know as a straight person play a gay man is different Mm -hmm. than a cis man playing a trans woman. And like, I think a lot of times the nuance of that gets lost in conversation. Um, And so I just kind of wanted to make sure that we were on all all of us, including our listeners were on the same page. Fully, fully. Yeah, no. And I think it's actually a really interesting conversation in terms of straight men dressing up in drag for comedic effect. And that there's a long history of that dating back to, you know, Victorian days. Like it's a, it's an interesting conversation. I don't think one that I'm necessarily qualified to have, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's an interesting conversation. Yeah. I think yeah. it's all, I mean, we don't have to get into it because you just said you're not qualified to have it, but yeah. I just think that it's for, for so much of our societal thinking is so binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and, and that I feel like that gets like overlaid. I don't know if that's the right word on so many things where it's like, Oh my God, there has yes. to be nuance to things like drag drag performers aren't always trans women. Sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, mm-hmm. but a lot of times yeah. it's cis men, you know, but that's, but also it's done in a respectful way. Whereas it's not harming the trans community. Whereas yeah. a cis man dressing up as a woman and that's the joke, that's mm-hmm. the harm. And so yeah. I think yeah. people lose that nuance and just like to to lump everything into a good, bad category. And that doesn't yeah. do anybody any good. Well, and there's no grace, too. I feel like we have to offer grace to historical time periods. We have to offer grace to society at the time. I mean, one of the best things a professor of mine, history professor of mine, once said, like, you have to judge history based on the era in which history was being made. Mm-hmm. And you can't you can't expect the actions of 1993 to be upheld by the actions of 2022. And so the, the climate at the time, they weren't thinking even of the ramifications of, of what they were doing. And, and while that's still wrong, like that's still a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's, I feel like we just need a little bit more grace to offer a little bit more grace and understanding to the nuance of the era and the time and the place and, and the intent of all involved, you know, is there malice involved in, in what, what they're doing? I don't necessarily see the malice in it. I don't see a lot of malice coming from the production. Was there malice that manifested from it? Of course, 1000%, but offering that little grace, that understanding and grace in the dance and holding people accountable while at the same time, not canceling and not move and not completely ending things and everything's so fatalistic. And I, I, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I don't either. I think it's <sighs> so many people are afraid to say or do anything because they're afraid mm-hmm. of being canceled and afraid mm-hmm. of that, like the, the horrendous online violence that happens when, when someone makes a mistake and, um, it's keeping allies. It's pe- it's keeping people with the power that we need mm-hmm. as a marginalized, oppressed community from yeah. doing the work because they're so afraid of doing something wrong because of cancel culture. Or the the, the I think the counter of that is they're so afraid of saying something wrong or sharing an honest, organic, authentic opinion because 
they 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 want to do right so a lot of it is performative it becomes performative at that point so you look at like you know we're recording this in june so it's pride month there's a lot of performative corporate activism mm-hmm. out there that these these well-intentioned straight people want to do what they can to recognize their queer allies and be sort of like open and accepting and affirming and all these things but in the process of doing it sometimes it becomes inauthentic because it is so performative. I'm mostly talking about the Postmates ad about bottoming. But, <laughs> right, right. yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you see the the Burger King where it, the Burger King oh, ad yes. was like the bottom? Oh. <laughs> oh. I just, so much. I was joking. I was, we were at a, um, like a baby, uh, baby birthday party picnic thing the other day. And I, um, I was talking to someone about Pride. And I said that I think, and it was a lot of straight people around me. And I was like, I think pride at this point is for straight people to like, to talk about being okay with gay people or queer people in general. Like, I don't think, I don't think pride's for queer people anymore. I think straight people have co-opted it and made it their way of being like, we love you. <laughs> there's a, there's a big part of that for yeah. sure. I, yeah. I went to, I, I've, I've lived in Brooklyn for 11 years and this past weekend was the first time I ever went to Brooklyn Pride. And I oh, feel, wow. I know, I feel so sad about it. I, I can't, I don't know where I've been. I don't know yeah. what my problem is. But, I have stories um, about Brooklyn Pride. Ooh. Ooh, well, yeah. I can't wait to hear some of those. Yeah. But, um, I'd never, first of all, I'd never heard of Good Judy's, which is yeah. very sad for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I was just reflecting about this today of just like being outside um in this like you know the block party of all the drag the drag performances Uh and you you know but just in case the listeners don't know um but just being so surrounded by all of these different kinds of queer people sure Mm -hmm. i'm sure there were some straight some straight sprinkled in there but mostly it was just like the most like this is me queerness Mm -hmm. and it was such a good um feeling to be in yeah. that space and to feel like no one's staring at me no one's trying to guess yeah. you know yeah. who who what body parts you know all that stuff that happens yeah. outside of that kind of space um mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse me and i think like like definitely the the pride that takes place in manhattan is like corporate this is for straight people yeah but yeah. like i really felt on saturday there is something like about the borough queer. prides yeah i so i used to I, I, we talked about this before. I think we started recording, but I used to live in New York. And um, when I lived there for a couple of years, I worked in politics and, and uh, I, like on local campaign races, one of them being Anthony Weiner. We don't need to talk about it. Mm. Um, but this is before all the scandal stuff happened. Anyway, but we would go to every single Pride event in all five boroughs of New York because every single borough has one, including Staten Island, which whew, that was a trip. Wow. But I did not know. Um, that. Yes, um, and the Brooklyn one is most is, in my opinion, the most fun. Although I think people from Queens will get very angry about me saying that. Um, <laughs> and uh, and what I love, what I love about, I mean, and what I love about sort of pride, I think, is I rarely participate because I, you know unless I'm doing drag or getting paid for something, I rarely will get out and do it because I feel like so much of my work and my life and, you know, going to a drag show, like I am in queer, I'm very fortunate to be in a lot of queer spaces and surrounded by queer people. And it is really affirming. And I do sometimes have to like step back and be like, recognize my privilege. I'm in a good space where I can be around queer people. And and even on the other podcasts that I do with, um, Ellie Glazer and Brent Sullivan, you're making it worse. We sometimes complain about pride and all these things, but 
it is important to recognize that people outside of big cities or even sometimes in big cities, they live a world in which they're surrounded by not a lot of queer people Mm -hmm. and they don't, they don't have the luxury of living a life surrounded by mostly queer people. And it's a, it's a sobering important thing I think to remember because a lot of people don't have that. I remember in, in St. Louis guys would drive when I would go to gay bars, guys would drive from like a hundred miles away just to come to St. Louis for a gay bar. And here I am driving like 10 miles, you know, nothing. And, um, you know, people, people go long ways to be in communities in which they can feel seen and heard and feel good. And it's a, it's a really wonderful thing. Although they should be able to be seen and heard where they live too. Of course. Yeah. That's the dream. Um, Yeah. That we are speaking into reality, hopefully. But I think like what you're saying too, it touches on, kind of the nuance of corporate pride rainbow washing also because i think you know if a company is going to make money off of the queer community they should give that money back or they they should make sure their policies are supporting their queer employees and i yeah. think like i was just talking to my friend about this the other day um and she brought up some good points of like and and similar to what you're saying too, it's like the folks in the, in the middle States, you know, um, uh-huh. I'm, I grew up in Ohio. So like mm. I'm, I'm Columbus Midwesterner. Yeah. Yeah. Columbus yeah. had like, you know, has a nice queer community. Um, yeah. but yeah, but people would drive from other parts of Ohio to come to the gay bars. Um, yeah. but you know, but you know, for folks in, who, who have to drive hundreds of miles, you know, seeing on target's website, that they can buy a t-shirt or they can buy mm-hmm. a, like a flag that's affordable. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, or seeing queer, just like even in the ads, like seeing two, yeah. two people or, you know, yeah. a, a, whatever, whatever queer looks like. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, is so, is also important. So well, like, and doing it, doing it in a way, I, one of the things, I mean, I don't want to open up a whole conversation about Disney, but my boyfriend and I are big Disney people and, <laughs> and we go to Disneyland a lot. And one of the things that I've known now, Disney is a company corporation. Yes. There, there are conversations that should be had about, you know, performative activism and queerness and queer, except all those things, all the conversations that are out there and that have been having had. Um, but one of the things that I have noticed for a long time at Disney and what I, which I think is emblematic of what a lot of other companies should be doing or can be doing is um, employing queer people in visible front facing positions so that, Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that that's corporate America, I think is not a bad thing. I don't think corporations are bad. I, corporations I think are largely what, what helped us get to uh, marriage equality. You know, it wasn't the states were trying to ban it and having all these amendments to the constitutions of states to make marriage between a man and a woman. But in the years following the, that 2004 sort of push to have those amendments added to state constitutions, it was corporate America that started opening up benefits to same-sex couples. Or if the, if the state would, if you're not allowed to get married in the state, you can register with the company as a same-sex partnership, so that then you can get spousal benefits for your spouse, so that they can get 401k, they can get health insurance, they can get those things. And it was corporate America that was really pushing that. And I think, and I don't have the data or the science or anything behind it, but. I think you can see a correlation between the acceptance within larger companies that employ thousands, thousands of people, millions of people, and and having that sort of normalcy around queerness then be seen by everyone in the company by being, okay, well, queer people just want to be married too, just like straight people. And you see that correlation. And with companies like Disney, I, like I just remember 
seeing sort of trans people working in front facing positions where everyday Americans are able to see sort of queer people who, who are, you know, they're, I mean, you know, I know they're queer because I'm queer. So I can see, <laughs> I, I recognized it, but to a straight kid, they're going to see a queer person and, and not think hopefully twice about it when they get older and they see another queer person or they have a friend that's a queer person or they, I think it's a really important thing to, put queer people, put marginalized people into front-facing positions so that people can see regular everyday Americans who would otherwise be biased, possibly, see that we're just living lives, working, normal. Everything's normal. Everything's normal, guys. Well, normal, quote-unquote. I hate that word, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I think it's really important, and, and I, hope, I hope there's a lot more of it. Yeah, it is important, and I just want to make sure that the people who are in those positions are also supported by like yes. company policies and they're not just being mm-hmm. used or tokenized in yeah. that way. And so again, this is a whole, like a, the conversation of nuance of like, all of these things ha- like can be true at the same time of like, it's so important to have them in those positions. And I really hope they're getting the support that they deserve. Yeah. And are, yeah. You know, we all deserve as humans as, you know, having mm-hmm. that support. I am um, <clears throat> a lot of the work that I used to do at a, an organization called Keshet, working with Jewish institutions on LGBTQ inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I would get the question a lot of like, how do I make sure I'm not tokenizing somebody? And like, and I'm like, well, until your actual entire structure has changed, mm-hmm. you're tokenizing people. <laughs> like yeah. if you like have the one black Jew or the one trans Jew doing the thing, that's yeah. tokenizing until yeah. it's built into your culture. And so yeah. people don't like to hear that because it like, it's a lot of work to change a structure that's been. And so yeah. um, it's just, it's, it's hard, um, but yeah. it's, it's worth it, but it's yeah. people, like we were saying, you know, people uh, are afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Or, and then it, it kind of slows the process down a little bit. Well, and it makes you wonder like, you know, how many tokens does it take to become normal? Like how, how, like can does the tokenizing of you know visible people within company does that lead to more change or is that just are you just rehiring the same person when you need to fill a quota like it's uh it it brings up a whole slew of questions that i would hope it leads to more inclusivity and more i don't know i don't know i'm I've been fired from every normal job I've ever had. So like, I don't, I'm not a good corporate person. So I don't know the answers to these questions, but, um, but I hope it, I hope it leads to more of it. Yeah. I hope so too. I think, I think it's like a both. And I think Mm -hmm. the, the the tokenization is as harmful as it is. It can help move a needle, move the Mm -hmm. needle. Yeah. Um, And so I feel like I kind of played that token role for, Mm -hmm years doing this work and was like but I was getting paid to do it and I like knew what I was getting into Mm -hmm. and so I felt like icky about it but also okay because it's like I'm I am I am getting through to a lot of these people who have power I hope that it sticks yeah yeah that's and that's sort of how I felt a lot in I remember in New York I would do a lot of stand-up shows where I would be the one queer person on a stand-up lineup Mm. and and you you kind of fill that quota and while I recognized what was going on. Like I fully recognized what was going on. Mm-hmm. I also was like, well, I need to get up though. Like I need to get up and I, and I can do this here. I, so it was, it was that double edged sword of like, 
I, I would love to see maybe three other queer people with me on this show, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah. And it was always sort of like, there was always the one woman. There was always the one person of color. There was always the one queer person. And then there were the seven straight white dudes. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Always. There was uh, I used to do an improv show called um, There's No Place Like Home. And it was mm. my friend TJ would always say, um, like the 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 like white dude show <laughs> like because it was always yeah. like mostly cis gay white men with like the token lesbian or the token mm-hmm. person of color um and so so like you know talk about for what it is in the time that it was being pretty you know, like the 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 words that you said like like taking it in the context in which it existed yeah um and it wasn't that i mean it was a decade ago it wasn't that yeah. long ago but it was long ago enough where that was like the norm and yeah. like that wouldn't necessarily fly now though i do still see shows that are like that but um that's just what it was then and did you okay. oh sorry no no go ahead no i was gonna no i was gonna say like on improv shows i did improv for a very short while i never was very good at improv because i'm not an actor but one of the things i noticed on improv shows because there were a lot of straight white dudes but i noticed that the straight dudes would all part of their they would default to going gay like it was always sort of like like they would sort of like in a scene you know if they wanted to get a laugh or like a long make a make a scene longer or something they would always play the gay ones and it was just sort of like every single time i was like okay straight dudes come on this is this is not you don't need to default to the gay part in your improv all the time I mean, I definitely noticed that. And I think that's yeah. part of why it was so important to have shows like There's No Place Like Home. And then when mm-hmm. that retired, I kind of um, revamped it into Thank You For Coming Out, where it was like, I want the, the, the queer actors on stage to know that our identity is not the joke. Yeah. Like, it's our superpower. And yeah. because every other improv show, like you're, you just said, like the queerness was the joke. Like if mm-hmm. someone wanted to laugh, they turned queer, like they yeah. took on a, a queer identity um, yeah. or, you know, like characteristic. And mm-hmm. so that's why I think um, and I would say like it was important for me to be able to be on stage. It was like the first time I ever performed on a main stage and it was mm-hmm. really cool to be among other queer people. And that was powerful. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to negate that because it was mostly, you know, like gay cis men, white yeah. gay cis men. And yeah. like, you know, when we know better, we should do better. And yeah. hopefully yeah. that, you know, people and, and I'm seeing it too. I'm seeing so much more like That's diversity in, in comedy and I'm also not seeing it. So it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, fully give or take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Really? I, I w- could talk about this with you forever, but I also have other things I want to talk about with you forever. Um, which the, I definitely want to talk about Sadie Pines, but before we get to Sadie Pines, I really want to talk about your documentary. Oh yeah. Um, Latter day Jew. And so, Uh um, can you tell us a little bit about the documentary? Is it out? Are we waiting for it to come out? Yeah, it it is. I know. Tell me, I want to know what the deal (laughs) is too. Um, no, it is out in, in Europe and I think Israel and like everywhere, but the U S. Um, and I also think it's out on like, uh, like other streaming platforms now too but there's an official u.s launch thing happening so that is all in the works but if you're international you can definitely watch it and you can also find ways to watch it too because i think it's on the internet in places i don't know i i'm very bad at those things but um it started as so it wasn't i i i didn't it isn't my baby i mean someone else a very amazing person Aliza rosden who's the director and producer of it she sort of spearheaded it all um 
I was working on a true crime reality comedy series and, and that didn't go anywhere, obviously. Um, and, but the person who was producing that sort of heard my story of converting from Mormonism to Judaism and that whole thing. And she thought it was an interesting story. So she started within a few weeks, just making a documentary about sort of me getting ready for my bar mitzvah, which we use the bar mitzvah, a big party for my bar mitzvah as sort of a, uh, as sort of the catalyst for telling a larger story about identity and me and Jews and all of that. And so um, we went on this sort of whirlwind journey of traveling to a bunch of different places, talking about what it means to be Jewish now and what it means to be a queer Jew and all of sort of the sometimes complicated things. But we did it all in a funny way. And it culminates in uh, my bar mitzvah at the end of the film. Um, yeah, that's the film. <laughs> I, I saw the like the five minute trailer and I just was yeah. like, I need to see this whole movie. I'll I, send it like, to you. I'll send oh, it to you. Oh, please. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I can't wait. I, yeah. um, I love, it's such a, I feel like it's such an important story to hear and to yeah. see and to witness. And, um, I, a couple of, a couple of questions I had for you and, um, which is something you said, um, like you, you had been curating your Jewish identity, like all along. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you said something along the lines of like, I'm Jewish and I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can share with me and us, like, how did you know, like, what were those feelings of, of yeah. being Jewish? Cause I, I hear this a lot of, of Jews by choice who are like, I just, I know I'm Jewish. And it's, I think mm-hmm. there are a lot of Jews um, who are very set on your mother has to be Jewish or you're not Jewish. Mm-hmm. And that's just not true. And so yeah. I really want to try to like have this articulated of like, what, what does it mean to be Jewish? What does it feel like? How did you know? Yeah. So I, um, when I was growing up, I was raised Mormon and I, I was never really religious. I would say as a Mormon kid, but I did all of the Mormon things that you're supposed to do. And, um, one of the first sign I always joked, the first sign that I was Jewish was uh, before my baptism, my Mormon baptism, you have to go through this whole long process of, you know, getting ready for the baptism and classes and everything. And the baptism is just a, the first stepping stone to your um, missionary work that happens eventually when you're older. And so it's a big process. How, yeah. how old are you? I just raised my hand. <laughs> oh, um, how yes. old are you when you are baptized? Well, so that's an interesting story, too. So I think it's changed since I was baptized. But boys are baptized, I think, at like eight or nine. And girls are baptized at like nine or ten. There okay. was like a, But I think they may have made it the same age now. I don't know. I, I haven't been following the bullet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I, I, what's funny is my baptism was delayed so much because I had so many questions, which, of mm. course, Jewish. That's the Amazing. first sign. Yeah. So I didn't get baptized <laughs> until I was like 12 because I had so many questions. Questions. And they never really, they never really had any answers for me because I just, I felt, uh, I, I, I felt like I was being served sort of like a, like, it just, it, it smelled fishy to me. You know what I mean? There was like, I didn't understand this whole obsession with like heaven and the, well, the celestial kingdom. And like, I didn't understand any of that. It just seems so weird to me to like living like you're going to win the lottery someday, but you mm-hmm. never actually get the benefits of living of the lottery. When you're living, you have to wait until you're dead to yeah. get the, to win the lottery. That seems like a really bad plan. And so it didn't add up to me. And, um, 
but eventually I just sort of stopped asking questions and did it because my mother really wanted it and my whole family was Mormon and, you know, you do it. And then, of course, as soon as I moved out of the house, really, the moment I was I was baptized, I I was I stopped being Mormon because I never identified with it. And I even got like turned on by the missionary that was holding me in the bathtub when I was getting baptized. So like, it's a whole like process of, I never really was Mormon. Uh, but it wasn't until years later that when I started reading more and started sort of, you know, educating myself on sort of religion and identity, because religion wasn't necessarily something I was seeking. Um, and I, when I started reading more about Judaism and having Jewish friends and being in Jewish circles, both in Chicago where I went to school and then also in New York, I started recognizing like, oh, a lot of those questions that I had when I was a kid are being answered by a lot of these sort of Jewish ideas about community and and sort of identity and all of these different things that it became less about religion and more about sort of like my place within the global community in a way mm -hmm. and within my com chosen community, but also a global community. And But I never did anything about it. And then I had... Um, I got, I got, I got testicular cancer and then I went through like a year of chemo and that wasn't necessarily why I decided to convert, but I had a lot of time on my hands. So, and Jews make it difficult to convert. So I, um, I started the whole process of studying and my, why I decided to do it then I think was because my life was and is pretty chaotic and it, you know, lots of different things and lots of vanity things about me and it, it was all sort of about me and I kind of got exhausted by um by everything and I needed something to ground me you know and to really sort of like cement me into one part of my identity that had very little to do with me and more with me in relation to everybody else and and my part of the puzzle in sort of what makes up the global community that is this idea of, of Judaism for me. And so that was really, I think, humbling and, and sobering for me. And I needed that at that moment in my life. And I still am very grateful for it and need it to this day. Um, and I decided to convert. And so I went through the process and then had the bar mitzvah and then did the most vain thing possible. I made a movie about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love that's also powerful to hear. And um it's just it's it really is just like a feeling it's like it's hard to explain yeah. and it's like whether or not yeah. you're observant whether or not you know whatever it might be it's just like i always felt a connection to judaism growing up mm -hmm. and um as i was learning more about my queer identities i was seeing the tension of like you know growing up in columbus ohio i don't think yeah. i mean there really there was maybe one out jewish adult in my life maybe mm -hmm. and um, I was learning that I had to pick Judaism or queerness. Like there was no overlap mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. And so for a really long time after Ohio, when I went, I graduated from Ohio state, um, I just chose my queerness over my Jude, my Jewish identity. And then yeah. it wasn't until a decade later, um, when I was kind of coming into my transness and figuring out who I was, I was like, I'm still missing that piece. I miss mm -hmm. my Jewish piece. Yeah. And so trying to, to find my way back to what does Judaism look like to me? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
you mentioned this in the documentary, and this is something that we talk about in trainings all the time where I used to at Keshet of like, we were once strangers, right? Like, yeah. we, like we all are like a Jewish value is like welcoming the stranger. And mm-hmm. so why don't more people do that? Why are we not yeah. having this conversation more of, of yeah. being more welcoming of people who are, who aren't well, and how, like us? And how you can serve others and how you can, I mean, I think for me, the biggest thing that I took from it, like we were saying earlier, is allowing space for grace between people and and for people to be who they are in the messy ways that we're all people. And I don't know of another, I don't like calling it a religion, but I don't know of another religion in which you're allowed space to sort of fail. And you're allowed space to sort of have your own thought and to question and to have doubt and to, you know, I could never have doubt as a Mormon. I could never doubt the possibility of heaven or what happens after we die or all these things. I could never ask those questions because those are questions you don't ask. You just accept it with with sort of, you know, with zero questions. And within Judaism, while there are parts of Judaism that are very complicated and very ugly, I would say, mm-hmm. um, there are also a lot of parts that allow space to question and to and to really have doubt. And I mean, what I love about a rabbi is that the rabbi isn't sort of the all knowing anything. They're a teacher. They fail, mm-hmm. too. Right. And it's it's uh, and the, like my rabbi always jokes that like he told me this joke that is so true that you have the two synagogues you go to, the one that you belong to and the other one you belong to when you're pissed at the rabbi at the other one. And it's mm. and. You don't have that in Mormonism. You can't go to another church in Mormonism because you don't like the elder of that one. It's all connected. You're going to one, you know? Um, so I love that about Judaism. But but I've, I've, I wouldn't say I'm religiously Jewish, although I, I'm very much involved in different things within my synagogue and also like within Jewish community and Jewish organizations. I'm very involved. But I, I'm indebted to the Jewish community. I'm committed to the Jewish community. And that's sort of how I practice my faith. And I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very faithful because of that. Yeah. It's, um, I think I've, I've, uh, through working at Keshet and like kind of, because it's an, it's intentionally queer and Jewish, like getting to, to like heal those, wounds i guess of mm-hmm. of feeling like i didn't belong and so so much of my life today is now like based in those jewish connections based in those mm-hmm. jewish moments where it's like i also feel like just so connected in that way of like you know you yeah know what i mean it's just like it's a beautiful thing to never really feel lost even though you can still feel lost like for me it's always like well at least i know i have that it's a nice thing. It's a nice feeling to know that there's, you know, those moments when you don't feel like you're standing on anything and you're kind of like, oh, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. I'm failing at this. I'm like, I, you don't feel like you're fully together. Um, there is the sense where I feel like, okay, well, I have this community that will guide me and help me to figure out where I can exist and find comfort and solace and all of those things. And it's, it's a nice, it's a really nice feeling. It's a really, it it sort of mentally keeps me in check. I think sometimes. Yeah, it is. It's really nice. Um, 
How does it feel being being the subject of a documentary? Weird. Yeah. Very weird because I'm I, I'm so used to performing in the way that I perform, which is like stand up and drag and like I'm very performative. And um, but in doing that, you know, it's sort of the tears of a clown thing in doing that, like I don't ever show sort of the things that I don't want to talk about. And 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 a documentary you're forced to kind of show the things you don't necessarily normally talk about. And I never really added anything about my conversion or anything into my act or into my set or into my comedy or anything like that, because it was just personal to me. It, I didn't do it for show. I didn't do it for a movie. I did it for me. And it was what I needed personally. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it did take some convincing, I think from, uh, from Elisa to, to sort of show me, that this is a good thing that telling the story will help others. And, and that's what I've always thought about my comedy and my work and just existing. It's sort of like what we were talking about earlier about employing queer people and marginalized mm-hmm. people in general, like the mere fact of you existing in that space allows people to then see something of themselves that maybe they don't see where they're from, or maybe it gives them direction on where they could be doing or the possibilities in their life. And so I recognize the power of art in that way. Mm-hmm. And, so like doing the uncomfortable thing was then okay for me, I think. Um, but it was uncomfortable. It was weird. There were so many times where Aliza would have to be like, say it normal. Cause I was saying it like a joke and, mm. or, or like, you know what I mean? Like I'd have to adjust how I am. Um, it's still one of like the most personal things I've ever done. And I'm really proud of it. Um, and I'm glad I did that. I don't know if I would do it again, but it was, uh, I'm really glad it exists. Yeah, I, um, I, well, I'm excited for when it comes to, to the States, but I'm excited for you to send it to me secretly. Yeah, of course. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I actually was the subject of a documentary that I Mm. ended up, um, pulling out of, um, but I was being filmed for, um, over a year and like had my family in it and it ended up, ended up just, um, this is still pretty recent too. Um, uh, I just had some, without getting into any of the like specifics, I don't need to do that. We, we ended up having different values and different, mm. um, just different values. And I didn't feel yeah. uh, to, to live in my own values to continue with the documentary mm. was a clash. So yeah. I pulled out, but um, it was, it was That's challenging. important. Yeah. That's an important, that's an important thing to recognize. I mean, Elisa and I are very different people. And she has a different, I mean, you know, she's a, she's a straight white woman and she comes from a different background than me. And it's, we're different. We're very different, but I think she's one of the most important people to me and creatively and personally. And I think those differences sort of help, but you have to be able to trust the other person to tell your story and to really give it up, you know, because I've never done that. I've always been the narrator of everything I've done, everything. There's nobody, maybe an editor sits there and edits some copy, but I still have final say. And it's, uh, it's, so it's challenging if you're questioning the trust you have in the other person that's telling your story. And you can't, if you feel that you can't do it. I'm so grateful that I had, that I trust Elisa in the way that I do. Um, because she really got it, I thought. I thought mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. really nice. Um, 
Okay, I'm going to switch us gears one more time because I see where yeah. our time our time is get running thin. Oh, you're fine. But, you're fine. Um, okay, cool. Um, Sadie Pines, tell yeah. you know like what an important person. I think you said that she was like number one of your identities mm-hmm. of the moment. So tell us about Sadie Pines. How did she come into your world? What do you do together? Like all the things. Yeah, I Sadie is great. Sadie is my drag persona. Um, it was sort of a manifestation of the years that I spent and we're still doing it on out on the lanai a golden girls podcast. So I have, I love the golden girls. I have a golden girls tattoo. Um, and so we've done this podcast for years and it was a, it's a big podcast. And we, um, we just sort of created this nice little golden girls community. And when it was coming to an end and I had just, I had just finished coming to an end, meaning that we had finished watching every episode. And so now we're watching and we're still doing special episodes and stuff like that, but we're not doing it regularly because we watched every episode of the original series. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, when it came to an end, I was kind of in a, both with Golden Girls, but also just creatively in a place where like, I was really exhausted by the stand-up scene and I never felt like I was going anywhere. And I felt like all of my success in my career had been coming from things that stand-up benefited my voice in those things, but it wasn't a result of stand-up. And so I was kind of in this weird creative, I wouldn't say slump, but I was sort of in a, in a place of, I needed to find a different way to communicate. And, um, and then Sadie sort of manifested from that and allowed me to communicate in creative ways that I don't feel like I ever would have been able to in any other capacity. And, um, and I think sort of just, you know, call back, calling back, uh, to the birdcage, the, the presence of Nathan Lane and I mean, so much of my drag and my drag persona is Nathan Lane's character in the birdcage. I mean, mm. to the point of the way I perform and the things that I do and my comedy and all of those things. And it's, so it's, it's sort of, um, it's nice to be able to sort of come home again to something that is so sort of foundational to who I am as a performer and to have spent however many years bouncing around doing things that I thought I was supposed to be doing to be able to be a performer and sort of saying no to the idea of femininity and the idea of drag and the idea of being overtly queer and trying to fit in in straight comedy spaces and with the straight comics and growing the beard and doing all the things that you're supposed to do to fit in in this alt comedy scene and all of those things. And then I just decided to say fuck it and realize that a lot of those people in the alt comedy, that part of the comedy world that I was so desperately trying to be a part of, I mean, no offense, but are losers. And I, I don't, and, and they didn't, they didn't get me and I didn't get them and no, no, no harm, no foul. Like, good, you go do your thing. And, I'm sure Comedy Central will probably give you something because you're so different and alty, but it's just not for me. And and so I needed, so Sadie sort of opened up a, a window for me into doing something different that I really, really needed at that at that point in my right now at this point in my life. Um, and it's it's going pretty well. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's a nice it's a nice nice reality. Yeah. Why, why do I, I, okay. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I only just started watching golden girls. Mm, wow. Yeah. So I, I feel like for years I've had friends tell me that I would love it, that it's incredible. 
and I've been watching it and it's, I love it. It's incredible. It's hilarious. Mm -hmm. It is so, they are so mean to Rose. They're so mean to each other, but they're so in love with each other. Mm -hmm. I love it. But what I'm curious, like, what is it about the Golden Girls that makes it so gay? Like, why do so many gay people, queer people gravitate towards it? We we call our roof our lanai. Like, we just like, we love it. And so I'm just curious, like from an expert, like what, what do you, what is, what is it? It's so interesting because that's definitely the question I get asked all the time. Well, mm. no, the, the first question I get asked is, what golden girl are you? The second question I get asked is, why do gay people like it so much? Why do mm. queer people in general like it so much? And I think it's a great question that continually needs to be asked because it's an important thing. Um, I think it's so rare for queer people to see themselves on television. At least it was, especially when golden girls were on television. And if you think about it in the canon of television history of popular television shows, let's say pre, you know, Will and Grace, let's say that um, you often didn't see yourself in things. So you have to sort of see yourself in other people who are kind of like you, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and I think you know, people who aren't sort of straight and white will, will recognize that, that like you have to try to, Find us some connection to it. And with the Golden Girls, I think it is you have four women leading a television show that that already is rare. And they're all outcasts in one way or the other. You know, they're all living and existing in a world in a way in which society says women should not at that time be living and existing, meaning they shouldn't be single. They shouldn't be having sex. They shouldn't be going on these crazy trips or doing these crazy things or whatever they're doing. And instead, you have these four active women who have created a chosen family with each other because they are social outcasts. If that's mm. not a definition for a queer anything, like what is? You know what I mean? Like it's it's just so queer. And in doing it, we're seeing them sort of thrive and succeed and and, and have fun and live a life that is sort of happy and content and they have each other and it's just it's just wonderful and it it sort of harkens back to like i think the 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 sort of legends the queer legends that we obsess over the judy garlands the bet midlers the barbara streisands the you know there's so many so diana ross like so many women that and it's it's i think almost always women with the exceptions of maybe like divine or liberace there's a few exceptions in there but it's often women straight straight white women often too that we we impart these sort of i don't know things of them that they're different they're outcasts they're ugly ducklings and so but they're they're fully living in the fantasy of being gorgeous and amazing and talented and beautiful and like over the top and everything and it's sort of like they're living out the fantasies that we as queer people want to sort of exist in as well but society's telling us no you can't do you can't be like that you can't be that extra and i think the golden girls have that too that that they're just extra. They're so extra. Mm-hmm. And and we celebrate them being extra. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. That's, I never thought about it. Thought about it in that way. And that's, I do love that idea of like the chosen family and them being out. Yeah. Like just everything you said makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's great. I just, I am. I, oh, here's a, here's like a technical question. So we're only mm-hmm. in season three. But yeah. season three's vibe and the and the mm-hmm. types of episodes feel different than one and two. Is that is there mm. a reason for that? 
So yeah, over the year, I mean, it had pretty much the same creative team for the first, I think, four seasons of the show. But I think in season three, I mean, think of the year too. You know, the Cosby Show was really big. Cheers was really big. Um, but shows like Seinfeld, Roseanne, et cetera, weren't on the air yet. And and so television sitcoms were kind of going in like a a weird, strange meta direction in a lot of ways. And I think season three, they start allowing a little bit more absurdity. I think they were trying to sort of do the story driven shows that was so reminiscent of early eighties and seventies, meaning Maud, the early days of the Cosby show and everything would be a special lesson or like, mm. you know, uh, uh, all in the family, et cetera, where there would be sort of topics, issues that they had to discuss. So that's why in the first few seasons you see, you know, the curse of the change where Blanche is going through possibly menopause or Rose gets, gets sort of assault or the robbery or all these issues, the things they still did issues in the other seasons. Like you'll, you haven't seen this yet, but chronic fatigue syndrome or the AIDS episode, which is an incredible episode. And there's a wonderful backstory on that episode. That's so fascinating. We talked on the podcast to what the writer that his mother inspired that episode. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, yeah, they really sort of diverted and they allowed space for comedy. Like, I mean, it was always funny, but they yeah. allowed space for just being absurd. I see. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Me and my and you see were... it a lot. In... Yeah. Sorry, go you, ahead. You, see it, you, see it, you see it a lot in the third season, especially. That's when it really starts changing. Yeah. We were like, huh, this is a very different feeling. This is, we were, yeah. and every episode we're like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. It's, my it's favorite thing <laughs> when you're watching it is you watch Dorothy's hair change throughout. There's a, it, it starts off fairly natural, like her hair, and then it becomes a helmet by the last season. It's really funny. <laughs> I love yeah. it. I love it. Yeah. I can't, I can't wait to finish it to then start it again to start to like pick up on the nuances and all the like, all the stuff. Have that you, you gotten really to, have you gotten to condoms, Rose? Condoms? Condoms? No. Oh, that's a good one. It's a Valentine's. I think it's in season three. It's um, it's the Valentine's Day episode. And they're all going on a cruise with Jeff and Rich and Randy. And they um they have to like prepare themselves. It's it's all it's like a flashback scene, basically. And they they go to the drugstore to buy stuff for the trip, for the cruise. Um, and Blanche suggests they buy condoms. And of course, there has to be a price check on the condom. So the announcer gets on there and says, you know, price check, whatever. And well, Blanche says condoms, Rose condoms. It's a really good scene. You're going to love it. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> I'll let you know yeah. once I watch it. <laughs> yeah, please, please. <laughs> um, I could I, I could talk about all of this stuff with you for hours, but I, I do need to move us into our last segment, which is the lightning yes. round of questions. Okay. It's meant to be fun. Um, okay. they are mostly all open-ended, uh, cause I was told my questions were too binary in the past. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, feel free to answer as quickly as possible. Feel free to pass. Um, so if you could name your own crayon, what would you name it? Ooh, uh, ooh, uh, mac and cheese. Love it. Favorite time of day. 3.30 nap time. Ooh, that's good. Um, favorite current queer media representation. It's not current, but Faye Dunaway. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just I think I just saw the the your yeah. post on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a song... Don't call us; we'll call you. We'll call you. <laughs> <laughs> um, a song that makes your heart soar. Oh, oh, oh! Aretha Franklin's "A Rose Is Still a Rose." Mm. <laughs> nice. Um, favorite beverage. Oh, this oh, this is bad. Crystal Light, the mango. I get I. Th there's like a mango version of it. 
um oh god what is it called it's mango something and it's i it's just delicious and i buy boxes of it it's just it's kind of sad and crystal light is like the in the little packets it's adult kool-aid yes it's yeah, just a little it's a it's the little packets and they're like low calorie or whatever but i'm obsessed with the mango one and i drink it all the time that's amazing i it's add a- it to teas i do kinds of crazy things with it that's great. I mean, whatever, whatever it takes for us to stay hydrated. Yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. like in, it was fifth grade. I felt so cool. Um, I would bring my water bottle and a, mm-hmm. like a lemonade crystal light packet. Oh. And I just felt, I was like, I'm drinking this in class. And it just <laughs> felt so cool. I remember that very distinctly. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> I don't know if I feel cool drinking it. I actually feel a little lame. I think these days drinking it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> this might have been like maybe when it first came out where it was like Probably. the like the yeah. like skinny packet, like single serve. And I was like, I'm doing yeah. it. <laughs> um, okay. Favorite quote. Oh, that's hard. Um, oh, my God. That's hard. What is my favorite quote? Oh, wait. I just posted it. Hold on. Let me just pull this. Just give me one second. Um, my favorite quote is is probably this John Waters quote that I, I think about often. Um, and it's sometimes stupid and cute are enough. And, and I think, mm. yeah, I think that's what, that would be my favorite quote. Sometimes they are. stupid and cute are enough. Stupid yeah. and cute. Yeah. Who, stop trying to be deep all the time. People just be stupid and cute. Sometimes it's fine. I love that. Yeah. Okay. Last, last question. Bagels or donuts? Donuts. Oh, so yeah. you, you, you I know. were acing the interview until this last question. I know. I just, I love, I, I just, I love, donuts to me are the best dessert. They mm. are delicious. I love a bagel. Don't get me wrong. I love a bagel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but I, there's something really special about a donut. It's just, it's just joyful. I love, I love, I love that. Good. Yeah. If it's going to bring you that much joy, then how can I be mad? I get so you know? excited about donuts. You have no idea. What I think is interesting, though, is that you said that donuts are a dessert. And I always think of donuts yeah. as like a standalone. No. I've I never think had as dessert. I think I think I have always treated donuts as a special treat, as sort of like a, oh, we're going to get donuts. You know what I mean? Like, it's like a, it's, it's, it's never a breakfast. It's never mm. a something i just eat you know what i mean it's always sort of like i i treat pop tarts the same way which Mm. in a weird they're kind of on the same par with me although i would always choose a donut um but yeah donuts are a treat to me they're they're just i get i get even thinking about it i get excited about it yeah (laughs) i love that um this has been such a pleasure thank you so much for for being here and for sharing of course of course anytime always i had so much fun i hope i didn't put everyone to sleep unless you're needed that eight hours and you're in rim right now which is wonderful please <laughs> like happy happy for you no this was this was wait, not boring wake up <laughs> time to get up <laughs> episodes over yeah yeah <laughs> thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it you're welcome and thank you for yeah. coming out of course what couldn't help it <laughs> thank you for coming out